0: Welcome everyone. This is the Ontolog Forum and it's October 26, year 2006. Uh, today we have the pleasure of inviting Dr. Pat Hayes over to give a talk on a logic for ontology interoperation. And before uh, we move on to the main body of the session, I would like to uh, give special thanks to two people uh, Professor Christopher Menzel from Texas A&M University and Miss Elisa Kendall uh, from uh St. Piper Software uh, Chris introduced us to uh, SCL. <laughs> which I guess would be the predecessor and the project that he, he and Pat working on and Elisa uh, actually prompted us to invite Pat over to, to talk at the ontolog forum so to both of them uh, our deepest appreciation and uh, Chris is with us today is Elisa here Elisa said she would try her best to join us too but I guess not uh, I would like to have professor Mensel introduce our invited speaker today so, uh, Chris?
1: Uh, thanks, uh, uh, Peter. I, I won't say much. Pat uh, gave uh, some nice information about himself on the website, but a couple of things worth noting. Uh, uh, he's uh, certainly a distinguished and well-known figure in, in, in artificial intelligence and, and more recently in the Semantic Web uh, work. He's a past president of AAAI, um, an author of numerous very important uh, and also seminal papers in uh uh, in AI and work that really anticipated a lot of what's going on in formal ontology and the semantic web, especially his papers on naive physics, uh, really sort of set that whole uh, that whole paradigm in motion. Uh, he also the author of a very uh, um, widely used, uh, excellent uh, catalog of temporal ontologies, temporal theories, that he did when he was at the uh, Beckman Institute, I think, at, in Illinois. He's also uh, been uh, a significant uh, figure in the development of uh, RDF and OWL, in particular uh, writing up the uh, very nice formal semantics uh, of uh, RDF, uh, and uh, uh, some of the ideas of which come out of the work on on CL, Common Logic. Uh, He's currently a senior research scientist at Florida IHMC, and uh, uh, well, without further ado, Pat, take it away.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Well, um, the work I'm going to be talking about today is actually, um, Chris played a, a major part. it It's it's really the result of a collaborative effort. Um, you should all be seeing my tastefully elegant gray, slide one. I recommend going yeah, to slide two. Um what I thought I would do, I, I noticed in giving these kind of talks recently that people uh, get rather muddled about all the different um, acronyms and names, uh, not surprisingly, because we keep changing them. Um, so this is just a quick attempt before we get into details to, to summarize the, what these are about with a pronunciation guide over to the, uh, the left. So CL is a, is a draft ISO standard, which is kind of the overall umbrella that these things all fit into or are related to. And this is just going through the final throes of ISO approval right now, and should become an ISO standard uh, soon. Um, now, common logic is not a particular language, not a particular syntax it's a sort of framework with a, attached model, a model theory attached to an abstract syntax for defining a whole range of, of different surface syntax and in fact the step draft standard defines three distinct surface syntaxes. One called CLIF which is very similar to the um, old KIF um, uh, standard logic that many of you are familiar with and one um, a, a the, um, conceptual graph uh, surface notation is defined there as a common logic dialect and also a uh, very soon there will be an improved uh, version uh, XML uh, notation for common logic also as a dialect and one could define many many more um, Cliff as I said is one particular um, common logic dialect Uh modeled on kit very Lisp like in style and um We'll um, most of the examples I use in this talk will be very similar to we'll be using basically the cliff syntax style so you'll, and I'm sure many of you will be very familiar with it KIF is like the granddaddy of all this stuff that uh, in fact you can trace the history through uh, of common logic through the names that were used uh, it was initially called SCIF for simplified KIF then SCL for simplified common logic and then just common logic now, IKL, which is the, uh, object, the, the particular t- topic of this talk, is, is a, a, a much more recent um, language um, that was developed during the past year uh, within the ICRIS program funded by ARDA. And this is the language that was specifically designed uh to be an, a language for interoperation between different ontologists that's the whole point of the ICRIS program you can find out more by going to the ICRIS homepage for details of the general program and I think maybe although I unfortunately missed it last week that um, Chris Welty may have spoken about um, uh ICRIS I, at least I hope he, I, I'd be surprised if he didn't um, so, uh, what IKL, the relationship between IKL or ICL uh, to uh, common logic is, ICL is not, strictly speaking, a common logic dialect. It's an extension of a common logic dialect. Here on slide three, um, it's an extension of, of a common logic dialect which adds some new kinds of naming expressions, in particular a way to give names to propositions. <laughs> um, but with that extension, it is basically a classical first-order logic, as as all common logic dialects are. Um, now, one, we have discovered, I think that's what we're putting here, that IKL is actually more expressive than we, and I certainly, have thought when we started di- uh, building it. Uh, in that quite a lot of the um, other ontology, ontological languages can be just basically transcribed as sort of um, uh, into IKL syntax with, all, with very little change. And so... Um, um, the, the addition of these gaming facilities to IKL seems, turns out to have been surprisingly powerful, and so a large part of the rest of the talk is going to be um, drawing attention to some of the uh, the features that arise as a result. Um, now one of the things we wanted to do in IKL and this follows the design of common logic itself was to keep the logic itself is unconstrained as possible. Uh, what we mean by that is that there aren't any, or uh, there, are, there are very few restrictions on the syntax. So you can use relations as arguments of other relations, you can have functions whose values are relations, you can uh, use names in just about any way you like, and anything can be quantified over. And the result looks sometimes superficially like higher order logic, but it really, uh, believe me, there isn't time to go into it in this talk, but it really is first order. Um, and it can be processed with some translation, perhaps, mechanical translation by conventional first-order inference engines. Now, I should say the the IKL extensions uh, been, would break a conventional first-order inference engine at the moment. But I'll get back to that point. Okay, next slide four. General principles of the IKL design. So the idea now, some of these are marked IKL and the rest are marked CL-IKL because lot of these are really aspects of the common logic design, except for the first one. Um, The first one is, if you're doing interoperation between different uh, ontologies and the same applies really on the web, on the semantic web, uh, it's really a good idea to make sure that you have one universe that contains all the things that anybody ever wants to talk about. And that's the universe that the logics quantifiers range over and IKL sort of cleaves to that general principle it means that the quanti- a quantifier means the same thing in every, in wherever you use it it always means everything and that everything is a very broad everything um, IKL is a, trans- a common logic indeed it is a transparent logic you can a quali- use a quality substitution anywhere um, that turns out to be a, you know, it's a fairly obvious uh, desirable quality of a language but it turns out to have some important consequences when you come to talk about propositions so I'll get to that later um, it's unrestricted there's no uh, type or sort checking there are very few legality constraints I've already mentioned that any name can be used for any purpose um, the actual logic of it is, is is fundamentally conventional ordinary first order logic um, it's not modal it's not contextual it's not hybrid it's not any of these other fancy schmancy logics that people have adopted for various purposes um, and it's what I call an a, or what Chris and I call a network logic what we mean by that is the meaning of an expression you can use the published content of this logic on an open network like the web um, it can be transmitted around the network pieces well, as long as you take a well formed piece of, of the logic and uh, you can transmit it anywhere else and it should mean the same there even when used in conjunction with other pieces of logic from other sources as it does at the original source in other words in, another way of putting it is that entailment should commute with transmission now that has some uh, consequences. If you go to the next slide, slide five. So here's an example to illustrate the, the point. And this is a, it's a large part of the, of the design of common logic itself. So here's three bits of first-order logic. Each of them is perfectly conventional. They're written in Cliff syntax, but KIF-STAR syntax. But they're perfectly conventional first-order logic, and they each obey the usual first-order restrictions between... Um, uh, lexical distinctions between uh, relation names and individual names. If you look at the top one called Pale of Water, you'll see that married is a relation name and Jack and Jill are individual names and male is another property name and there are, there's a simple axiom there which actually is a um, the prohibition against single-sex marriage. Um, in the uh, ontology called REL, they... Um, Things like married are, are the objects of the ontology and they have properties, being a binary relation, being a symmetric relation. And then there's an ontology called Rel alge which just talks about some mathematical universe of things and defines the notion of symmetric relation. And each of these taking isolations is is perfectly conventional first order. Go to the next slide, 6. And what we see here is that each of these bits of conventional first order logic has been transmitted over the network and put together into an ontology Gold Mother Goose and now the um, uh, we have to if we were obeying the usual lexical rules of first order conventional textbook first order logic things would break because married here is being used both as a relation and as an individual and indeed if we want to draw on this conclusion if we want to be able to infer for example that Jill was not was female which would be reasonable under the circumstances since she's married to Jack and Jack is male and the first axiom uh, says that therefore she has to be female except that it's got the married the wrong way round if you look in order to make that inference so we need to con- in conclude that married Jack Jill and which we can do, of course, because marriage is a symmetric relation, and we have a definition of symmetric relation, and all of that could be done by perfect uh, ordinary first-order inferencing, um, provided we're allowed to use these names without bumping into the usual first-order restrictions. And indeed, that's what common logic does. And so, if you look at the, the red married in that uh, final ontology, which comes from the uh, tale of water, and the blue married, which comes from um, Rel. Uh, and you'll, you'll uh, I, if you can't do the first order reasoning in your head, come to it afterwards and look at this slide more carefully, and you'll quickly see that um, it's necessary to, uh, that these are the very same notion. So that there, uh, a, commonly, uh, do, a commonly argued p- a point here is that one can get by by doing what's called punning, in which you say, well you can just use the name in two different ways and, and that's okay but they're different meanings but no, that's not good enough because you really do, it really is important that the red married and the blue married are the same married even though one of them is individual and one of them is a relation. and in common logic and also in IKL and in Cliff, actually common logic allows you to have this or not have it because it's sort of very broad um, and, and uh, sort of cassock with a small c but but it's certainly in Cliff and in IKL um, the... This is legal, and, and, and the unconstrained nature of the use of names in the syntax—I yeah, think that I've tried to show here—is a, a sort of consequence of the, and also, by the way, the panoptic nature of the universe. Look at that bottom pink bubble. Are consequences of the fact that this is required to be a network logic. Okay. So another uh, consequence of that. Go to the next slide, slide seven. When ontology says for all, what does that mean? Uh, now very often when people are writing ontologies in fact perhaps inevitably really when you're writing an ontology you have some particular universe in mind when you're writing your quantified statements and of course even if you're using an, uh, um, an ontology language that doesn't have explicit quantifiers say like owl um, you are, in fact, quantifying over things because there are, if, if you look in the, in, the, in the semantics of these languages, they almost invariably allow some kind of statement that if you were to transcribe it into the, a logic, would have a for-all in it. Like, for example, that one class is a subclass of another. Um, well, so what does this for-all mean? Um, it, it, it's, the danger when you, when you allow logic to come to a network is that it might, be, it might be transmitted someplace where it means more than you had in mind when you wrote it. What one should do is is restrict your quantifiers to the particular categories that you are thinking about. If that's tiresome, and it often is, to have to repeat it again and again, then uh, Common Logic and IKL follows it. It gives you a construction called a module in which you can write your quantifiers without worrying too much about your local universe. Put your whole theory, your whole set of sentences, in a module and give the module a name and then all the quantifiers are understood to be restricted to the class of things which are in that universe. And the name of the module is used as the class name. So this is a sort of, in a way, it's just a piece of syntactic sugar. Well, no, no in a way, it is a piece of syntactic sugar that quickly allows, you, allows one to sort of quickly and easily um, give a name to a local universe of discourse. And you can explicitly exclude things from that universe if you want to do. I mention all that just because this this issue about allowing people to have control over their local universes of discourse turns out to be a very um, um, hot-button topic for many people and I want to emphasize that all these languages give you that option. If you go to slide eight, what I've done here is um, simply summarise in a bunch of pointers and I apologize, the the slide format I realize that you're all looking at is a bunch of JPEGs. You can't click on these links. Um, If I had thought that through, I would have um, kind of format that would let you have them act as active hyperlinks but I forgot does
0: the, um, the, the PDF file uh, have the links? just try it they are okay fantastic just yeah I think it's just the think the, PDF PDF file. In the yeah.
2: way that a web browser would yeah. the PDF they don't look at
0: they're, not, on they're the not highlighted page. Yeah. as yeah. well as a link to uh, Dr. Hayes own site where he could maybe down the road update this talk as well so.
2: Yeah, okay. Um, so I'm just going to sort of leave leave you with those pointers and, and move on now to focus, uh, rather than sort of go through the language sort of feature by feature, what I thought I would do was uh, the rest of the talk is going to be structured as a series of examples, um, which I, in some more detail than others, in which I take content written in other formalisms and show how to map it into IKL. And along the way, which was the point, of course, of the ICRIS project. But along that way, I think we'll, that, that I will in this, we will therefore show, sort of illustrate some of the, the interesting features of the language. Um, so, slide nine. Uh, the first example, this is actually quite, a, quite an extent, a number of slides are going to be devoted this example. Uh, <laughs> context logic I thought that wasn't a comment Um, from context logic to IKL uh, the reason that was uh, a major focus of ICRIS was that context logics were being used by a number of the participants now context logic which was developed by originally by John McCarthy and has now been used in a number of kind of AI-ish and and also now (coughs) uh, oriented applications and sentences sentences are not simply true or false they're always true or false in a context so you never just sort of lay out a sentence bare as it were in, in, as an axiom. You always ist it. where you say it's true relative to a context. So the, the green and the red. The green always comes with a red as it were. Now if you look at that construction which I've written even a first order notation um, you'll see that it's got one sentence inside another sentence. And, and that just kind of expression simply doesn't make sense in a first order logic. I mean it, or if it did it would have to be you'd have to treat Ist as something like a Boolean connective. Um, in fact, Ist is more like a modality, a modality with a parameter. So this is a genuinely different logic. It's not a first-order logic. It's a conventional logic. As I say, it's more like a kind of uh, extended modal logic. And um, some people, and McCarthy is one of them, make, have made some very large claims about about this being a fundamentally new approach to foundation logic itself and so forth. Um and, of course, the idea is that the meanings of the terms in the inner sentence can change depending on the context. So, Dutch citizen in 1998 might mean something different from Dutch citizen in 2002. In fact, uh, all sorts of things can change. Even the quantifiers can change their meanings in some context logics. And in this example, the truth of that inner green sentence changed in the year 2000, which is when Holland made single-sex marriages illegal. It follows, therefore, that context logic isn't transparent because the, main mean the meanings of names differ depending where they occur, so you can't use a quality reasoning safely, and it's not a network logic because if you take a sentence, a well-formed sentence, and transmit it without its associated context, its meaning can change drastically. So, next. Next slide, slide 10. How we do this at IKL, we use, and this is, in fact, the original motivation for introducing this construction to IKL, we use this notion of a proposition name. So, actually, we went back to McCarthy's original writings on this topic, and he actually used the term proposition for that inner sentence. So we decided to take him at his word, and in fact, I actually called him up and said, did you really mean that, John? And he said, yes. So I said, right. We um, took him at his word and said, okay, if these, these things inside the ist are propositions, then we really should have a way of naming them. I was propositions in our first class entities in the universe of discourse. So we need a naming convention, and after some time, we came up with this convention: you write a sentence, and you put that around the outside of it. Then that, that resulting construction is the name of a proposition. And if that, therefore, is just a binary relation between things called contexts and things which are propositions, just like you know, married is a relation between two things that happen to be people. Okay, yeah. So the logic of this is now trivial; it's just a relation. Um, if you go to the next slide you'll see the example slide 11 the example from slide 9 here written out in the IKL way and you'll notice it looks pretty much the same uh, except that the inner green sentence has been wrapped up in a bat and therefore made into property you can do that to any sentence no matter how complicated the result names a proposition now um, one of the questions on the someone put a question on the um, on the wiki page which um, it is, it, I, I've given a reply to it to a reply to it there but I'll, I'll talk about it a little because it, 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 it's, it illustrates a common misunderstanding when you see one of these names proposition names that and then a sentence don't think of it as an operator called that applied to the sentence it's just a syntactic form this is a and, and its meaning is not is specified by the semantics of the language and 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 in fact ikl has quite a lot of um, semantic machinery associated with this construction so it's just as so much as part of the syntax of the language as something like you know quantifier or a boolean connective or something or a modality um, it's a uh, if you sure. think of that as an operator it would be easy to think that well, but, as the questioner did. But then, since the sentence denotes a truth value, it has to be a function on a truth value, and there only are two of them that are worth talking about. So what, is it, what does a, 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 a proposition name denote, by the way, is a good question. Well, it denotes a proposition. And what is a proposition? Another good question. And the answer to that is found in the technical documentation, and I won't go into it. But just, just bear in mind that, that a proposition is uh, something which is much more complicated than a truth value. In fact, it bears the same relationship to a truth value as a relation does to its relational extension. And the way we've accommodated this notion into the IKL model theory is that a proposition is a zero-ary RE relation. That's a relation with no arguments. Um, it's important to emphasize that although the, this is a, a genuine extension to the language, uh, and a significant one, um, it, in a sense it's not changing the logic. It introduces a new kind of name, a new way of referring to, a new, to something in the universe. But it doesn't, all, from there on up, from atomic sentences on up, the language is, com- is completely unchanged. So the actual sort of, all the first order inference rules and so forth, all apply without modification uh, to this language. Okay, next slide, slide 12 that reproduces this example here and there's an interesting uh, uh, issue because IKL is a transparent logic so that, that what that means is that a name refers the same way wherever it occurs all these names that, are in, that were inside the inner sentence just Dutch citizen married male female um, have a fixed meaning in IKL I mean, they, in, in, in a particular model that is to say a particular interpretation whereas of course the intention uh of the context logic was that they they would have multiple meanings depending on the context. They, and so what what this assertion should mean is that these refer to what they referred to in nineteen ninety eight. So to translate this into into IKL adequately, what we have to do is to go in and tweak all the names that are, you might say, contextually sensitive. And underneath you'll see that uh done in in a plausible way here, which is Dutch Citizen and Married are both contextually sensitive in this particular case because they cap- their meaning could change according to the date, whereas barring certain kinds of rather startling operations, uh, male and female don't. Uh, the technical term here is fluence. Some of these are fluent, some aren't. And in order to translate to ICL adequately, because ICL is transparent logic, we have to sort of pay attention to the fluence. And there are, there's, a, there's a large amount of, of, of work and, and software that has been written to do this systematically. Um, and a lot more details are found in the IKL guide document and and indeed can be got from other sources too Uh, go to the next slide Um, and now if you look at the the inner red sentence with those uh, 1998 inserted appropriately into the all the fluents uh, the surrounding contextualization the ist is really superfluous uh, because we've decontextualized the sentence so we can unwrap it and simply write the inner sentence as a sentence um, in this case. And indeed, this, what I've just taken you through, amounts to a sort of sketch, not sort of, a sketch of the mechanical process of translating from a uh, context logic used to express a certain category of contextual assertions, ones that have to do with time and space relativity. Um, into a conventional first order logic. And, and of course, the result is really quite familiar. People have been writing things like Dutch citizen married XY 1998 and Dutch citizen X 1998. With, well, people have been writing axioms like the bottom one for some considerable time. But, but the interesting thing here is that there's a natural sort of translation path through the IKL that construction. Next slide, slide 14. An observation. There are many ways to do that last translation. And in fact, there's been a lot of debate about the appropriate ways and, and there are even existing standards out there that you do this in different ways. So, um, the oldest way is to be treat them as what called fluence, where you tack on the parameter, time parameter, time interval parameter, situation parameter, whatever it's called, uh, as, as an extra argument to, the, to all the relations. Another way to do it, however, is to think of the relation itself as being time-dependent and in the second option here married 1998 applied to X and Y would be a a natural way to encode that in um, Cliff or or IKL notice the use of the married 1998 what is married here? married now is a function from times from years perhaps to a relation to a binary relation so this looks like a higher order statement again to emphasize although it's perfectly permitted in IKL it's not really a, a higher order logic um, there are only first order reasonings that can be carried out using this. Another option is um, you could do what uh, many, many years ago I called the use of histories, which has also been called endurance, in which you think of the individual things, the people in this case, as sort of extending through time and having temporal parts of their life identified by the time parameter. And so you can take slices of the 4D worms or whatever you call them. Uh, and then have a binary relation between those. And there are other possibilities as well. Now, all of these really are just ways of taking a binary uh, relational atom, married XY, and sort of adding in a temporal parameter to it. And and virtually any way you can think of doing that would would work if you were to write your ontology systematically. Next slide. The interesting thing about uh, Clif, in, in fact Cliff because uh, I, I, this doesn't really use the IKL extension particularly is that you can write axioms in the language which um, well first of all all of those different ways are legal and are perfectly respectable ways of, of expressing yourself in the language and you can write axioms which translate from one to the other or if you like which make them equivalent so, one doesn't have to have, really, a winner in this fight as to the right way to put a temporal parameter into an atomic sentence. And th- these fights have given rise to enormous amounts of, of energy in the past. One can now simply say, okay, everybody do it their favorite way, and we'll, r- we'll toss all the resulting axioms into a, a, a one ontology, and we'll have other axioms that do the converting between us, or, or establishing the necessary equivalences. Now, this slide, slide 15 uses a, a common logic convention, or actually a CLIF syntactic convention, which was which we adopted from KIF, although we changed the notation, which is the little three dots uh, there indicates what KIF called a sequence variable and what we now call a sequence marker, because it's not strictly speaking a variable. So if I look at the first one there, what that what does that say? That says for all C Rs and any sequence of arguments, if Um, R is a context parameterizable relation relative to C whatever the hell that means then the following are equivalent R applied to that sequence of arguments with C at the end or R applied to C applied to that same sequence of arguments so the dot 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 stands for any sequence and that could be the null sequence it could be a sequence with one argument a sequence as in the previous slide with two arguments or then you know the number of arguments so that establishes, in, sort of as a, in one axiom, a general equivalence, under certain conditions that I've put in there as a statement, um, between the, let me see, the first and second of the two patterns on the previous slide. Now, the first and third of the patterns, that's to say the married XY 1998 and the married of X 1998, Y 1998, and of course if it was XYZ, it would have the three 1998s in the second form it is a little more complicated to establish but the, it's done by the axioms that you see at the bottom of slide 15 and if you look at the very bottom I won't, I, it would take too long to go through these in detail if anybody has interested interest in how this works then, then um, there's a lot of um, information in the documents to chase them up and explanations and more examples um, or I could go through this example in detail um, later um, but I can sum it up by saying you can basically write simple tail recursions uh, in, in, a, in a list sort of style in, in, um, in Cliff or IKL. So you can define recursive op- simple recursive operations like adding 1998 to every argument in the argument list. Okay, let's go to slide 16. So you might ar- argue, why bother? Uh, you know, uh, context logics are perfectly fine. Um, uh, there are even reasoners for them, I gather um, and uh, have we? what have we done more than just uh, given an alternative way of writing them and I would argue that uh, in fact this is a, there's a great advantage to having an ontology of context compared to a logic of context and the reason is that there can be many, many kinds of context time intervals, time points areas, particular places points of view, systems of belief documents, sources Um, and if you go to the top of the intelligence community you'll find three or four more kinds they already are thinking about which are quite important Um, the unfortunate fact is that these all have different properties Um, so for example if you're saying something is true relative to a time interval do you mean true throughout the time interval or do you mean true somewhere during the time interval as in it happened last year when you're talking about a particular event you don't mean it happened all during last year you meant sometime during last year the logics of those two different notions of true and interval are different one of them preserves conjunction one doesn't for example um, also the quantifiers work differently on them uh, some kinds of uh, notions of, of context require you to have um, opaque names so we'll be coming to that in more detail um. later in t- others don't and so on that means that if you have one logic of of context, it has to be a very weak logic, or else it has to be an extremely complicated logic. Whereas, if you have an ontology, you can simply write out your differences as parts of your ontological theory of contexts. And in fact, you can easily, in the IPL rendering here, have a number of different uh, different kinds of is relation, as I've illustrated here. It's true throughout. It's true during. Uh, and believes is a kind of is relation. It's true in the kind of world of John's belief. That uh, human and Superman, and also not human and Superman. John, as you see, is one of these people like Walt Whitman who can um, believe in contradictions without harm. Um, and by the way, that statement there, uh, that last statement is perfectly consistent, IKL, even though it contains within, within it a name of a proposition which contains an embedded sentence which is a contradiction. That simply denotes the universally false proposition, which is a it indeed is a proposition not a very interesting one in my opinion but uh, it, is, it is what I should have said it, 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 it denotes a particular universally false proposition there might be more than one um, ok next slide now that a few slides ago I, I talked about decontextualizing um, remember that when we put the 2000 uh, the 1998 inside the statement about single sex marriages in Holland um, we provided enough local contextualization we didn't need the outer surrounding ist in 1998, 1998. and that, is, that rule itself can be stated as an axiom in IKL um, and here's the statement of it and you notice that that P in the uh, there, I actually written it out twice. Once using why I written it out twice? Oh yes, um, the second version uses a restriction on the quantifier. P D context means for all P in the class of D contexts, uh, i.e., decontextualized propositions. Um, so the, the P in these axioms ref- is a variable over propositions, so we can quantify over propositions, and which of course we can because they're in the domain of discourse. Again, notice that. Um, well let me just say there's a little comment here which I'll just speak since it's on the slide in my my view anyway a lot of the utility of of really of common logic of of the common logic Wild West Syntactic Freedom that Wild West Syntax is Chris Menzel's term for this by the way which is a a wonderful one which I wish would become standard i.e. you can go anywhere you like and do anything you want um much of the utility of that lies, lies in it, it provides this ability to write axioms to do syntactic conversions without having to constantly running into kind of prohibitions about what you can do with names without, you know, without being, having, being suddenly told oh but you can't say that because the rules don't you let you say it even though if you could say it, it would be perfectly meaningful in ACL, if, if it's meaningful you could probably say it and the result is that you can treat what needed to be treated before as methodological mappings between different formalisms as simply axioms within one formalism. Okay, next slide. Going back to that statement that, that axiom that I we told on this previous slide, you'll notice that it says if and only if if C P where which we've already seen that format, where P is the that, so and so. And then brackets P close brackets, which I've coloured pink on this to highlight it. So what does that brackets speak close brackets mean? Well, you might remember that when I said, uh, introduced proposition names earlier, I said that we treat propositions as zero-ary relations. Relations with no arguments. Now, the way you take a relation and make it into an atomic sentence in, in Cliff is you put an open parenthesis, you write the relation name, and then you write the argument sequence after it, and you put a closed parenthesis. If there's no arguments, that boils down to just parenthesis, relation name, closed parenthesis. So what brackets p close brackets means is take this zero relation and call it. Apply it to its non-existent sequence of arguments, and the result of course is a truth value. In other words, this is simply an atomic sentence. And what it asserts is, and this is the place where we've had to go in and actually insist on this in the semantics. This is the semantic extension, is that when you do that, the result The resulting truth value is the same truth value as the sentence would have if you just wrote the sentence out there. In other words, open paren, now notice, look at this next line here. Open paren, open paren, that, write a sentence, close paren, close paren, means the same as sentence. So if you look at the structure of that complicated thing, the open paren, that sentence, close paren, is a proposition name, remember? That's a special piece of IKL syntax that denotes a proposition. The outer parentheses are like the parentheses around the P are simply ordinary IKL syntax for calling a relation with, it happens to be, no arguments and therefore forming, excuse me, an atomic sentence. Um, And therefore, this this whole um, um, atomic sentence, as it is, in fact, um, uh, means the same as its inner sentence. So this gives you a way of... um, um, of basically a truth predicate on, send- on propositions so you'll note in fact we could actually use ist as, as, uh, to make it slightly more intuitive we could say ist p meaning is true that p to indicate that p is true to be the sentence that p is true and then p is argument and the axiom at the bottom of that slide defines ist in this sense um, ok next slide Now, sometimes, um, when you... uh, Certain kinds of contexts, notably contexts to do with beliefs or attributions of um, statements to various sources, where there's no indication that the context is is any kind of temporal qualification, um, sometimes these... um, in her sentences use names in a, way, in, a, in, a, in a way that doesn't obey the normal rules of equality. They use a paint name. So the classic example is Lewis Lane uh, is confused about Superman and Clark Kent. They're the same person but she doesn't think they are. So her, and we'll assume that she knows who Clark Kent is, but her idea of Superman is, is a fiction. Of course, she's a fiction too, but let's leave that aside for a second. Um, so in her beliefs, in the context of her beliefs, this name Superman and I quoted it to indicate I'm talking about a name here it means something different from what it actually means in the real world now the other extension the other naming extension that IKL provides is that uh, and we invented it just for this purpose but it turns out to be a very general utility is that it treats quoted names in other words whenever I quote a string of course that just refers to the string of characters so the string of characters S-U-P-E-R-M-A-N is a quote is a name But you can treat it as a function. And when so treated, you can apply it to other contexts. And then you can write axioms that treat that whole term, that that thing you look at there, quote, open paren, quote, Superman, belief Lewis, close paren, close paren, is actually a term, a function applied to an argument, which itself is a term in this case, a function called belief applied to Lewis, i.e. the function from Lewis to her beliefs or her belief context that what that term denotes is whatever Lewis believes the name Superman denotes now what is that who knows it depends on how confused this poor lady is but remember this this IKL is supposed to be a panoptic logic anything anybody can talk about is in the IKL universe and so this imaginary thing is in the universe somewhere so we can refer to it and we can say things about it we can say in particular that it's not Clark Kent because she she does not think that Clark Kent is Superman by the way the double quotes there on Clark Kent are just a a common logic syntactic trick for allowing names to have spaces in Uh, it doesn't mean quotation Um, there are a number of little syntactic um, niceties that that the logic has that that you can find out by looking at the documentation and I won't go into Uh, next slide slide 20 now um, if you use um, a name a quoted name in this way as a function with an argument the logic IKL just lets you do that but it doesn't say anything particular about it if you use, however the zero case if you use it with no arguments and this is another semantic extension that IKL provides then you get the real reference back out so look at what that, that, what that equation says in there if you, if you write if I take a name I write a sequence of characters I quote it that, the resulting expression the quote some sequence of characters unquote denotes the particular sequence of characters because this is just ordinary quotation that sequence of characters is the first class entity in the universe of discourse that entity can be treated as a function and in particular as a function of no arguments when you apply it to its no arguments so by putting parentheses around it what you get is not an atomic sentence but a term and that term denotes something what does it denote? it has to denote it's required to denote thing that the name denotes Itself. So this equation always holds for any name sequence. And this allows you to write very useful axioms. You can write axioms about things by quantifying not over the things, but over their names. So here's one. Look at this, exe- this next example here. This says, for all C... Tr- uh, C is a transparent context. So I'm defining the notion of transparent context. If and only if, what? For all character sequences S... Uh, this is laid out rather poorly on the slide the result of applying X to nothing i.e. looking up higher up what what S would denote if it were used as a name is the same as S applied to C which is the name that that what it denotes in that context in other words names used in this context mean the same as what they mean outside the context in other words the context is transparent to naming which is a very useful thing for a context to be, because then you can quantify into it. So this is a way in which we can state general properties of classes of names in terms of the kind of things they denote. So go to the next slide. Uh, actually, the next two slides are a couple of um, uh, I put them FAQs, because these are the... Uh, I, I, these extensions to, the, to conventional logic often produce, I've noticed, produce a kind of goggle reaction in, in logicians. And um, these are some of the uh, kind of... Um, when people manage to get their breath back and say something, uh, these are some of the things they say. Uh, I think... Hold on a second. E- yeah. No, let's, let's, uh, let's do all these in, 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 in sequence. So, slide 21. So, how can a character string be a function? Well, in common logic, anything in the universe of discourse, the universe of quantification, is a function, is also a relation. That's how common logic allows the syntactic freedom that it does. The, the details are found in various of the documents that we've referred to earlier, and you can go and check them out. Um, the, the, the very ingenious, simple but ingenious mathematical construction, which um, I learned from Chris Menzel, and he will have to tell you who he learned it from, um, if anybody. Uh, so, it, so in many ways, the sort of um, the little the little uh, the little everlasting battery in the centre of all this work is is due to Chris. Um But uh, but but the, but the 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 effect is that if you can talk about it, then you can treat it as a function. And therefore, uh, it, since IKL allows character strings in, in its universe, then they can be treated as functions. And although it just seems rather unintuitive, uh, there's no particular logical. Reason why it shouldn't be done, and in fact, um, I, I, I can speak personally here because when the first time I saw this, I saw this possibility that well, that that means that character strings and and even like you know integers can be treated as functions. My immediate reaction was, well, that's ridiculous. We should prohibit that. And and we did, didn't prohibit it in the design, not because we thought it was useful, because we had a sort of general philosophical position to maintain, which was only put in prohibitions if they're absolutely necessary and we asked ourselves is this necessary and we said well no it's not necessary it just seems sensible but alright it's not necessary so we didn't prohibit it and lo and behold this thing that we almost prohibited turns out to be extremely useful as a moral layer which is fairly obvious I hope and I certainly learned it that lesson so the second objection that doesn't like the kind of logic I'm used to I don't like the look of it it looks weird well all right, it is weird um, don't, don't worry about it. But in any case, you can think of open paren, quote, name, unquote, context, close paren, as meaning something like name subscript context. It just indicates this name used, in some sense, differently than normal, and associated with that context. And a context here, by the way, could be anything at all. It's just any, a thing that... is is thought of in the ontology as changing the meanings of names Um, and that's so this is really you could think of it really as a way of subscripting names and that's really all it boils down to but it allows you to quantify over the the subscripts and also over the names before they're subscripted which is what makes it so useful so the next objection is but wait a minute let's take that Superman example there's this fictional thing which is Lewis Lane's belief the character that Lewis Lane thinks Superman is and this person doesn't exist because it's not really Superman because really Superman is the same as Clark Kent and so on and so on. What, what I, I People, I've actually had people reaction is, look, look, you might want to have these imaginary entities in your universe of discourse but I don't want them in mine. Okay? Um, well, the answer to that is, tough to be, uh, in IKL, the IKL universe, precisely because IKL is intended to be a language that can be used as a sort of a, a, not sort of can be used as a transform between different ontologies can itself take prohibitive stances regarding what exists it has to be willing to accommodate anything anybody wants to have in their ontology so it is so if you want to restrict these things from your ontology go back and use a module or, or be explicit about restricting them however the IKL universe has got them all in and in particular it's even got Harry Potter's pet aardvark and it has because I just mentioned that and so even though it's not in the, fan- in the books um, if it can be described then if uh, I try and describe it and I'm writing an ontology then the IKL universe has to have it in ok next slide 22 so does that does that mean then that IKL is is asserting that all this fantastic non-existence does is really existent is a sort of philosophical power of protest and the answer is no you have to distinguish be- precisely because IKL adopts this panoptic stance regarding quantifiers You have to say, look, when we say for all, we don't mean for all real things. We mean for all things anybody could ever want to talk about. If you want to distinguish the subset of those things that are actual, that are real, you need to have a predicate, an actual class of things, real things, real uh, hypothetical things, not just hypothetical hypothetical things. Um, That might seem like a philosophical, well, some philosophers argue, passionately that, that you shouldn't be allowed to do that because it's a state, because existence is not a predicate and so forth but if, if pragmatic uh, uses in, in for the intelligence community require this kind of thing because the intelligence community is constantly having to have quite extended chains of inference going on and communication and in fact entire departments of the government concerned with things that turn out later not to have existed at all weapons of mass destruction spring to mind um Excuse so me, Matt, I, I had a question. question. I, I thought that... Yes. Uh, this is Conrad.
3: I, I thought that that was always the semantics for all. Is that not the case?
2: Uh, no, no. Many, many... Well, it depends on... I mean, the logic, as far as first-order logic is concerned, has got no axe to grind about ultimate reality. But, but many people who use logic and philosophers of logic... Um, Chris can probably speak to this better than me but um, have, have clearly made the assumption that exists means exists in fact it's one of the motivations for the use of modalities is that since exists means exists if you want to speak of possible existence you should say possibly exists rather than simply exists um, this, all I want to do is distinguish that stance from, from this stance if you and I are in, uh, in, in line on the the stance that distinguishes logical existence from real existence that's fine IKL requires one to make that distinction um, and of course you can use modules and so forth to uh, to keep your local universe uh, um, tidy if you wish to so okay. why are they called opaque the names by the way I should say in in other places these are referred to as captured names which is a term we used earlier and I think it's not so informative if you see captured name that's what it means next slide 23 the traditional I want to contrast this technique with the way in which the same kind of content would have been written in a more traditional notation so suddenly had a modal logic of belief which could also be a context logic uh, in fact in in, in which case that first line would be if believes Lewis that not equal etc let's make it into a modal belief logic so believes of Lewis is a modality here which is why I put a colon there Um, and then there's a sentence wrapped up in the modality which expresses what it is that Lewis believes and it expresses it in the way that Lewis herself would state it so, that the idea is that, again, the, the names are used, as it were, in the way that they, you, they would be used if, if you were within that world of belief. So, Superman denotes what Lewis, it refers to, not the real Superman. Now, that means, therefore, that different Supermans mean different things so if you look at the next line Superman equals Clark Kent that's a fact in this uh, imaginary world that we're in Um, but if you look at the two blue Supermans there and you use equality substitution on the second one um, into the first one you'll get that Lewis believes that Clark Kent is not equal to Clark Kent which of course is not true because Lewis is not that uh, confused Um, so we when we have names in an opaque context like this we can't use equality reasoning on them um, and that's why these moda- uh, modal operators like this are called opaque, because the names inside them are kind of, have to be kind of rendered as visible, have to be kind of grayed out so that normal logical inference doesn't apply to them. So you could, a way you could just sum up what we've done here is that instead, instead of having opaque contexts, we've incorporated the opacity into the name, essentially by quoting the name, which is a, a single unproblematic trivial way of making an opaque un- construction out of a name by quoting it but then using a, a, a semantic convention to get us back to the referent possibly with a parameter now next slide this has some advantages 24 the cost I should say has some cost too the, 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 the con is that you, you have to be explicit when you're writing uh, what people believe or statements that involve any kind of opacity because the names in IKL are all transparent so if you want opaque names you have to actually put the opacity into the name even if it's in the same context that you're, th- that you're talking about so, which is sometimes a bit long winded but compare the following sentence Mostly what we want to say is that there is somebody who really is Superman but Lewis thinks he's not which, of course, is true. Clark Kent is the guy in, particu- in question. Um, in order to say that in a conventional language, you have to use a quantifier because, and, and that's a, the topic example here does it, because you have to say there is, exists something which is equal to Superman but believes, Lewis believes that is not equal to Superman. Now, in IKL, you don't need the quantifier. You can just say, make a statement of equality. Superman equals Lewis's idea of Superman because there are two entities in the universe right I would say not equal I should have said there are two entities in the universe this panoptic universe one of them is the real Superman and the other is this sort of uh, Superman surrogate that Lewis believes in and they're not the same thing and the fact they're not the same thing expresses exactly the same thing which, rec- which requires a much more roundabout and indirect way of stating it using the conventional modality and quantifier in particular it gets rid of a quantifier, which is quite important. We can also make some general statements. Um, Question here? Yes, go ahead. Uh,
0: since um, nobody, has, perfe-
2: first? Cassidy, <laughs> <laughs> Pat nobody Pat. has perfect knowledge of an individual, it would seem to be invariably true that whatever the actual individual happens to be is not equal to what a person believes it to be. Um, and I presume you thought about that. And did, I, I imagine you,
1: ma-
0: you suppose this is doesn't have to be worried about in most contexts?
2: Uh, Yes, yes to all that. Um, I actually don't, don't, I have thought about it, and I don't think it's true. Um, In other words, I I don't think we need perfect knowledge of something, certainly not in the sense of complete knowledge, in order to accurately get a reference located. I mean, for example, I can, um, this actually happened to me once many years ago, someone picked my pocket and I saw him do it. Uh, he ran down an escalator. I ran after him and I grabbed him. I didn't know who this person was. I knew very little about him other than that he was a ruffian and he picked my pocket. But I physically had hold of him. And I said, you stole my wallet. Now, I claim that the referent of you there was perfectly unambiguous, even though my knowledge of this man was about as imperfect as it can get. So, uh, I, I just don't you know I, I hear what you're saying but I don't think that reference depends on perfect knowledge so I think it's perfectly it's certainly perfectly reasonable to in, in an ontology to state that something refers um, without that you know quote Superman quote refers to some particular thing without being able to have perfect knowledge of it
1: and just just to note that in you know, contemporary work in philosophy and linguistics, by far the, the dominant view of of names and references is that, uh, as it's sometimes said, meanings aren't in the head; that reference is really determined communally in, inside of a speaker community, and so uh, that in fact a reference is possible with very very little knowledge of the actual reference. So that supports Pat's point. I think Pat Pat Hayes's point.
2: Yeah. Yeah right. I I I, uh, I know I go along with the majority on this point. Uh, but to get back to the to the actual topic here, I mean, one of the cute things about uh, this this quoted naming and with parameters convention in I K L is that it does give us the opportunity to at least to a very limited extent, admittedly, to begin to write ontologies about issues like this. Because we can talk about things, we can talk about names of things, we can talk about names of things relative to contexts of various kinds and we can discuss in axioms how they relate to one another and quantify over all of them um, and as I say it doesn't, give you, it doesn't give you the kind of analysis that will enable you to transcribe Kripke into first order logic but, but it does at least give you a beginning uh, on this kind of a, of, of, of a grasp on this kind of a topic uh, which I think hasn't been possible until now ok next slide 25 should be right now, an observation about this. I, look, I, look, I think of all the things in IKL, the, uh, this opaque name construction, treating a quoted string as though it was a function, is the one that gives, causes the most, you might say, logical boggling. People sort of look at that and they think, what? Um, and it's, in a, it's just an observation that, in fact, this is, in, or essentially this idea is in widespread use um, throughout the computing community. It's called data typing. Uh, And and, uh, if you look at the way data type literals are are handled in RDF and OWL, for example, uh, they're defined to be a quoted string of characters associated with a data type. And the semantics of a data type is it's a function from quoted strings to denotation. And so... um, the, the, sort of the, the idea of having a naming expression which, which associates a quoted string with something that is an indicator of how that string denotes according to some convention or set of conventions that is a very established widely used robust idea with a very clear semantics that has not been problematic and in fact uh, I can speak from some experience with RDF that we tried to avoid doing this in RDF because we thought it was ridiculous to have to say number all the time this is just saying two plus two equals four, and every way we could think of that was clever cleverly got a- around the need to say number every time broke. Uh, so this is actually a very robust technique. Um, so you can think of all that, of, all, all this stuff about the paint names as really being an extension of data typing into the world of, of uh, it, it treats context as data types. Um, okay, next slide, twenty six so this is all of that has been my first example which is mapping from context logic and really it's context and modal logic into IKL and it's far and away the most complicated example so I'm going to give a few more description logics is the next one now description logics when you look at them they don't look anything like a conventional 1st order logic they don't have quantifiers in them they don't say implies and ands and anything they, they consist of Depending on the notation you like, either rather barbative or, or very very mathematical-looking um, primitives, which define classes in terms of other classes and restrictions on properties. So, and, and a class is a sort of category of things, and you can say that things are in a class and various other things. And, and depending on the particular description logic, you are more or less uh, expressive-powered is brought to bear on this task of defining classes but they're really about defining categories in terms of other categories and relationships Um, and there's an example there on the slide now in the way you map this back into common logic or CLIF or IKL and and it really is just CLIF we're not using any of the IKL extensions from from here on out uh, is that a class becomes a unary property a property with one argument uh, a uh, sorry a relation I should have said class is a unary relation a property in the description logic sense is a binary relation and the various class constructors are functions on these relations now this is not new observation this is in fact the description logics if you go back to their literature go back to the beginning this is how they were defined originally Um, so we're just as it were reproducing the original um, genesis of description logics but the interesting thing is that the cliff common logic wild west syntax freedom Let's us do this. It lets us have functions on relations um, without without sort of breaking the first order syntax, and we can even use equality statements on them. If you look at that statement, that's simply a definition of the class child of U child of U.S. citizen post 1955 as the and of the all r of the. Oh, I won't read the all that You'll see what they means. By the way, these ands and all r's and must be's are defined in the um, uh, in documents cited in um, earlier slide and there's a pointer on the next slide to the document so I won't go into the full details but believe me they can be written out ag- as axioms in IKL straightforwardly and, and they're a straightforward rendering of their intuitive of their DL meaning so and by the way for those of you who know OWL is OWL intersection of all R is um, OWL restriction um, on property parent of um all values from owl all values from etc etc must be is I think owl value is if I remember correctly so these all correspond to owl primitive so I, I deliberately use a more intuitive uh, terminology here um the next slide's gone. The, this, this example written out in OWL. And, and I, I love doing this because cause it looks so, it takes up so much space in OWL. Uh, it's kind of comical. And it's even worse if you have a bigger example. But to be fair, that's really not OWL's fault. It's XML's fault. Um, and partly RDF's fault. Because OWL has had to be re- encoded in RDF, written out in OWL, in, in RDF XML. Uh, and if you did something like that for the, for the CLIP or IKL, Version you'd get something about the same length, um, and in fact the the translation star as I say here mirrors the usual description logic syntax, the compact mathematical description logic syntax very very closely indeed. Uh, there's a much more detail than anybody who isn't a description logician would ever want to see in the papers cited on this slide. Um, and I, I okay, that's, so I just wanted really to do that example to sort of bring bring home to you that. Not only can one embed description objects in, in for IKL, you can do it in a very, very, um, direct and simple and straightforward way. They, 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 they turn out to be exactly what you'd expect them to turn out to be, which is operations on names of classes. Okay, next example on slide 28, the next slide. Um,
0: 27 or 28. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, we yes sorry yes
2: i i, perhaps I missed the twenty six to twenty seven transition sorry uh twenty seven was the um the owl example uh continuing example two and it has the pointers to the documents with more details in so you should now be on slide twenty eight example three now Uh, Una is the unique name assumption, and closed worlds refers to the commonly accepted convention in databases, of course, that that the list of uh, facts is, in some sense, complete. So if you don't find the employee in the the database, then that person is not an employee, which is not logically valid if a a database is a simple conjunction of grand facts, but is widely assumed and it, it, this is what you all know is called a closed world assumption and then the assumption that if you can if there are two different names in the list then you're referring to two different people is a unique name assumption and these are widely used in all kinds of practical uh, knowledge representation um, systems in one form or another and they're widely claimed to require a different logic a non-monotonic logic IKL of course like all common logics is a perfectly conventional monotonic logic um, but the ability to talk about the names of things and speak of whether things are in, names are in lists of names lets us at least to a first you know gives us at least a toehold on being able to state these conditions uh, explicitly now the, the, the downside if it is a downside is that you need to have a, a name in your language in your ontology for the list that is a closed world or is or or, or the list of names which uh, in which the unique name assumption applies so here's the two examples I expect you read them by now and the first one says and notice you, you have to quantify over the counter sequences These are, this, is, this is using the quoted name convention so this just says if you, for all names in, in, in the for all yeah all names um, if names in brackets ie remember that's a term which, uh, which refers to what the name would refer to, what the name refers to when used as a logical name, is an employee. In other words, if the thing named by the name is an employee, then that name is in the list, from which you can easily infer by modus tollens that it's not in the list, then it, what it denotes is not an employee. That's a close world assumption. And the unique name assumption is very similar in the obvious way in which you, the, the, equ- 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 equality between the reference notice the brackets around N1 and N2 entails equality of the N1 and N2 the names themselves and notice I've had to here you have to do put in explicit qualification if the name is in this list because of course it's not going to be in general true for any use of these character sequences that this holds although were you to assert that you would be stating a global unique name assumption which would be a very dangerous thing to do Pat, uh, if you yeah. it, given this,
3: um, does this mean that if you had an I K or C L or I K L, this is is yeah. Then, if you had a reasoner that supported this, does that mean that you would not need to write all the closure assumptions you normally need to write first of
2: That's correct. I believe, if I understand your question correctly, that yes, it does mean that they'd be entailed by it. Now, I've got to be a little careful here. The way you'd normally state, for example, a closed rule assumption in first logic is you'd actually have a, a quantification, right? You'd say, um, for all X, if X is an employee, then either X equals name one, or X equals name two, or X equals name three, or, 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 or. Right. Right? That actually is not entailed by this. Um, because there's no because that basically lists the names in the disjunction Um, but I suspect that any any conclusion anybody would ever want to draw from that is entailed by this in other words the the particular fact you give me a name if in fact it's not in the list of names this the the axiom on the slide will enable to infer that that name does not denote an employee
3: so I, I guess what I'm wondering is, does this get around those issues in predicate completion where you need to go to circumscription and so on? To get yes. <laughs> yes, it does. What it does is it
2: does provided you have a name for the list. Notice that I'm assuming that this list of names is there and that we can compute member, right? So you could argue that that my use of member member name db list here is implicitly a has got a sort of predicate completion on member of uh, implicit in it now in fact you can define member in cliff using the three dot convention and the recursion I mentioned earlier but that does take you beyond strict first order the, the use of the three dots use of sequence variables this is actually a mistake in KIF uh, KIF had sequence variables and it claimed to be first order it's not first order it, it takes you beyond first order because the resulting logic is not compact Um, but we're still working on exactly where it takes you to Um, it takes you to somewhere just a little beyond first order Um, there there seems to be an an extended notion of compactness that applies to the language it's basically it's like first order with a a recursion operator added to the syntax so to be honest with you I'm not sure of the exact Story here, the exact formal answer, because it's, it's still open, it's still work to be done. But it may turn out that this really doesn't. they doing this in full detail, when you write right down to the to the metal, that there is something rather like predicate completion going on. But at the very least, it can be all located down to one point in the logic, as it were, which applies to all these different cases.
4: But, but, so this is uh, Michael Greenberg. Uh, you know, there, there are certain cases where predicate completion is first-order definable, in which case you wouldn't need icl to say it. And then there are, are, are cases where it's provable that circumscription is not first-order definable, in which case you wouldn't be able to use ICL to say it because it's second. It's really full second order. So I'd be a little careful, maybe, on making some of those claims. Really, it full s- requires full second order. That's amazing. Circumscription. Well, well, general circumscription does, but that's only. That's Did one technique circ- for dealing with predicate completion. No, but circums- circumscribe piano axioms. You have the induction axioms, sec- full second order.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, circumscription is powerful to no doubt. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know the answer is.
3: Although, what the interesting thing would be is if these are other techniques of doing predicate completion that are not... Yeah.
4: Well in uh, order and that would
3: that
2: would be a great
3: thing.
4: Well, see the By the test way,
2: guys, if anybody else wants to work on this stuff, we would just be delighted as <laughs> the collaborators. But yeah, the, the limit
4: test is always first order definability, right? I mean you you can never axiomatize you know the standard model of arithmetic with, with ICL or common logic because it's first order first order logic, first order definable. So I mean uh, that to me that's kind of a limit test as to how powerful
2: yeah, some claims I can mean be. Chris, Chris Menzel can correct me here, but I don't think you need full second order to get that. You just need a little bit beyond first order to get to to nail down a a a model, um, a no. single model a pick. Right. No, you, you just need to get past compactness. You
4: need pi one one to get standard model.
2: Do you? Oh, okay. I'm out of my deck. Well, here. Chris
4: can Chris can correct me on that, but I'm pretty sure. Anyways, I'm I'm derailing you. Go ahead yeah okay um,
2: yeah okay so let's go so we're looking at slide twenty eight let's move on to 20, slide twenty nine now this is a much more uh speculative, but um what my most recent interaction with an alien community, which is one of the great uh benefits of working on standards bodies, uh, was I bumped into the business rules community um, and Uh, These guys, I I should be careful here because it's a very large community, but they they have evolved a, uh, they have their own um, standards body, and and, um, they've evolved a, a, a draft standard, which is for writing business rules, which are sets of rules to govern the kind of, well, businesses, basically, how businesses operate, as I understand it. Uh, and their belief is and their firmly uh, held uh, uh, view is that they absolutely must have a modal logic The non-modal logic is not good enough and the reason is they absolutely must have the distinction between they basically need the deontic modalities permissions and obligations they must have the distinction between something being true and something being required or obligatory or whatever in other words um, if you violate it uh, it can happen but you've sort of broken the rules when you violate it um, which they want to do using a, um, an overall deontic uh, modal Pat, logic.
5: Pat, quick yeah. question. Uh, you, you're referring to the OMG uh, specification here? or um,
2: no. I, it, it had a V in it. It's been done within OMG. SBVG? SBVR.
5: SBVR. yes, that is the OMG one. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah,
2: yeah. Right, thank you for reminding me of that. Um the, uh, now that, course, that does not map into, uh, a non-modal logic, uh, and it doesn't, the, 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 um, the techniques for modal mappings that work for tense logics and, and even logics of belief don't really, well, they can be used, uh, with different modalities, but I, I, I think the results are very unintuitive, to put it mildly, because you have to talk about sort of permitted possible worlds or, um, um I, or impossible worlds in which something. Anyway, I don't understand it, frankly. Um, it seems to me that an alternative, however, is to treat uh, what are they encoded as geometric modalities as predicates on events or actions. Um, and I've done that at least on the sort of a, a back of an envelope level um, to a the large chunk of the example, um, which was a a complex set of business rules uh, describing a car rental agency, which was used in the SBBR, SBBR, whichever, um, uh, draft standard. And it all seems to map very, very straightforwardly, in fact, in some cases with some advantages, into a non-modal logic in which there are what you might call modal properties, except they're not modal anymore. of, uh, of events or states of affairs whatever one calls them so for example uh, since these, these entities are there in the, in the business rules model already um, it seems a shame not to use them and so the example here is instead of saying that it's obligatory that the driver of a rental event should have a license which is valid you say that if the driver of a rental event has a driving license which is not valid then there 's something wrong with that event um, and the, the this predicate of something wrong with the improper event predicate uh, it, similarly to the adva- the ontological advantages of, of having context in the ontology rather than the logic the great advantage is you can you can write richer ontologies uh, you can have different kinds in this case of improper event and they can be relations between them and so forth now this is all rather sketchy because none of this has been done to the extent of being able to be a a proposal for a new standard, but I, 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 I've, um, in informal um, in discussions, as we say, with the SVBR authors, I've suggested strongly to them that they uh, look at this possibility and I'd, I'd be interested in pursuing it. I think it's a, a viable way of um, uh, modeling uh, the, the required topics for business rules in this kind of a formalism. And I haven't yet. Looked at this is just really mapping it into order conventional logic without it being strictly do with ICL, but it will be interesting to see what happens when you get the um, when you can use the power of, of that ICL provides for name, for coding over names. Um, okay, coming to the end soon. In the slide 30. I just want to a few sort of trot you through, through surveys of other things here. The the the, the, the ICL syntax um, compared to KIF. Uh, it's uh, been brought up to date. It lets you use any Unicode character sequences. Um, it allows uh, very elaborate commenting facilities. You can comment in Arabic if you want to, things like that. Um, it supports numerical quantifiers, and, and there's an XML syntax for it, or at least there will be by the end of the week. Um, and the other thing is that the notion of context that we used earlier, they could also be things that are loosely referred to as knowledge sources, i.e. particular ontologies or ontological um, sources so in a context where sorry, I'm misusing the word context here in a setting in which the primary use of the IKL as it was in ICRIS is to be the sort of interlingua between a large number of different sources one can keep track of where terms come from by using the quoted name opaque name construction and instead of thinking of of the argument as a context think of the argument or arguments as indicators of the source of the name where the source here is like the psych ontology or the um, you know whatever ontologies you're, you're transmitting between and this is, this enables the, the, the central ontology as it were to keep track of uh, uh, both the provenance of names and also possibly things like the security uh, level of names for other purposes so that's a, an area which we Began to look into in concept ICRIS and plan to look into in more detail in the future, but, but the initial ideas are promising. Yes? Well, yeah, uh, again, Pat um, Cassidy. Can one take a whole series of assertions in ICL and wrap that into a, a general uh, assertion saying all oh, this is true in some yes. particular context? Yes. There's a notion of, it's actually a common logic notion of a text, which is the top level syntactic construction, which is just a sequence or, or set, if you like, or a bag or whatever a container of, of sentences which is it, semantically it as a conjunction of course and you've got two ways basically at the very topmost level in common logic of p- putting this into documents you can either just have a document of text and then text just be sort of strung together literally concatenated and they're still legal texts or you can include modules which are these things that have a local universe associated with them and they're given a name and, and you can treat one of those as I mean it can have an arbitrary large text inside it but you can also treat it as being a single sentence within a larger text so you have quite a lot of well quite a lot you have, we tried to keep it as simple as we could but we, it seemed we needed that distinction at the top level between what you might call plain text and kind of protected text <laughs> which has um, a local universe associated with it and those two as far as we can see seem to allow for most of the constructions anybody's come up with you can also import. You can, you can just have an import statement that uses a URI or some other identifier to identify another piece of text or, an o- or a module by name, which we just borrowed from OWL without really changing it at all. What are restricted and numerical quantifiers? Oh, sorry. Restricted quantifiers, We already saw examples, like, you know, for all... Um, X Which is a character sequence Just putting a, a class restriction On a quantifier Which is just Syntactic sugar But it's very useful Um Numerical quantifiers Are where You write For all N uh, You know A numeral For all Three Human X human Say So and so So you can uh, that, that, that just Is an efficient way Of It, it saves you writing For all X one human X2 human X3 human if X1 is not equal to X2 and X2 is not equal to X3 and X1 is not equal to X3 then <laughs> um, uh, you could just say for all three X human um, so you can say things like everybody's got ten fingers and ten toes um, that is saying for all X human there exists ten finger of X finger of XY, um, X Y sorry exists 10 Y finger of Y and Part of yx. that actually says there are at least ten, and you get the most by negating. Again, these are these are widely used in in they, these, most description logics. Included these because the original designers, which were guys at Bell Labs about 15 years ago, um, decided they would be handy, and they have proven to be extremely handy. A, a, a lot of practical ontology work uses numerical counts on things, usually quite small numbers of things. But Like the example I gave, or even a lot of medical information involves, for example, keeping track of the numbers of things that people have. Um, Adrian,
5: Adrian walk over the question, please. Yep. Um, uh, Could we go back to slide six for a moment?
2: Oh lordy, I don't know if I can. I'll try. Yes, okay, here we go.
5: Okay. Um, you, You take your three sort of local ontologies and you smush them together at the bottom right. Yes. Okay. Left. Uh, bottom left, excuse me, um, but then the quantifiers in the bottom left seem to range over everything in the universe of the three component ontologies, am I correct in this?
2: That's correct, yes.
5: So now if I try to do your closed world assumption from the latest slide, I get all sorts of kind of ridiculous type uh, violations
2: um oh yes if you were to just use a kind of bare uh, unprotected closed world assumption o- on a general ontology you would get all kinds of nonsense um, in fact one, one of the uh, and it's not particularly because of, of the phenomenon illustrated on slide 6 either but just in general you will I mean most most descriptions are not closed world descriptions and are n- don't satisfy unique name assumption it's only very particular Highly organized and carefully maintained uh, knowledge bases, of or information corpora, that, that satisfy those conditions. It's just that they're useful because there are a lot of those highly maintained database-style corpora around, and, and when you have one, you want to be able to use those assumptions on it. I know, for example, that um, is, is Bill Anderson on the call? Because if he is, I know the the, the um, he's told me that he he. Uh, his company's systems use um, a kind of global unique name assumption internally as it were and, but of course they do that because they they i.e. the systems themselves although very large scale are carefully uh, maintained and have all sorts of protective inference mechanisms to make sure that the internal consistency of the unique name assumption is maintained you certainly wouldn't want to use any of these um Conventionally non-monotonic um, uh, inference styles on, a, on an o- in an open world.
5: So, so I mean, it, it seems I can either merge ontologies as on uh, slide six, or I can have closed world, but I can't really have both.
2: Well, if you look at the, the way that, the clo- that we suggest handling closed worlds in the um, in, in the later slide, and I've actually now lost track of which number it was, twenty something. Um, mm-hmm. There's, you notice that there's a reference in there and there has to be in order for this style to work to the actual DB the, the, the knowledge um, corporate itself I think it was called DB list okay. so, and, and it's that, it's that reference that, that makes it possible to use what is to use these closed world assumptions and so forth in a global context and still have them uh, applied locally one, one of the, pro- in fact, right now the the, the the one of the currently active working groups, the rules uh, RIF, the, the rules uh, working group for W3C, which is trying to develop a rules language, I'm not on that group, but I kind of watch it from a remote distance. And uh, a, a, a big controversy within that whole large, well, three really a communities, a communities, but that large group has been whether the rules language, that was the singular there, should be monotonic or not. Many rule languages just our have um, non-monotonic constructions, in particular the closed world assumption, built into them, built into their semantics. But of course on the web, that's really a very dangerous thing to do, to just go around the, the World Wide web looking at random chunks of data at, with a closed world assumption. I mean, you're you're going to c- quickly produce all kinds of crazy conclusions. So all one wants is a way of applying the closed world assumption Locally, when you know it's safe to do so because it's a very efficient way of working when you can do it, but not fall into the trap of having it built into the foundations of your language so that you're forced to use it even when it does not, it's not appropriate. It's just my view anyway. That's, that's uh, and one of the utilities of, of having a monotonic logic within which you can formalize apparently non-monotonic constructions is that it at least begins to get you the best of both worlds I say begins because there almost certainly are details to be worked out for real life cases but,
5: but, but, but then looking at, at slide six Pat Adrian Walker again um, it, it, it looks like your three arrows sort of need some extra things about accumulating a list of stuff if you want to do closed world
2: no because the, um, the closed world Rep- the, the 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 closed world limitations would be written into the axioms. In this in this particular case, on slide six, there aren't any closed worlds involved. But if there was a closed, world well, something was a database of people who were married in 1998. You know, that would be a, another one of these boxes. Um, and it's simply a list of, of pairs of names. And if you if a, two names are not in that list, then they weren't married in that year. That uh, would be a closed world. That would be a a, some, be a, a, a knowledge um, corpus cor- uh, uh, corpus with uh, a closed, associated closed world assumption and the way that would be encoded in the IKL world here is that there would be an axiom, an explicit axiom that would refer to that corpus and say of it that if two names are not in it then the relevant reference are not married and therefore there would be an associate issue like little sort of world closing ontology that was attached to or refer to that corpus and then it would be that that little extra ontology with that a- I k l axiom as the kind seen on the later slide twenty something um, which uh, which would in- which would empower a closed world style reasoner to to draw the right conclusions, but in fact, all of that reasoning is perfectly conventional. Um, uh, first order reasoning once or at least IKL first order reasoning once one has the IKL semantics available and therefore fits into a global framework which is a monotonic as, as it should be if, if one's using it in, in, a, in a general open network I believe precisely because of phenomenon on slide 6
5: but, but then I mean you, I, I could interpret that to mean that you've resolved the debate within the rule interchange format group
2: Well, I'm not going to say that I've resolved any debate within a uh, W3C working group uh, but I think that yeah, honestly, I think that the actual formal uh, device needed to resolve that debate is is here yes, indeed, I do Uh, this does resolve it and in fact, this was actually in its essentials, although not with a particular ICAO mechanism uh was pointed out oh before the RIF group was formed um, by a number of people and I was one of them. Uh unfortunately attitudes uh towards non monotonic and monotonic logics have become so entrenched and so um, surrounded by um, almost emotional commitment that it's very hard to get a large body of people to agree on a technical decision. But I honestly don't think that the problem is technical anymore. I think it's political.
6: I've got a question. This is Mike gosh, at Boeing. Hi, uh, Mike. I a few, few questions, but I'll just <laughs> see where we get to. So one what, is... What slide are you on? What slide am I on? I'm not on any slide.
3: All right, go ahead.
6: General questions. So one is, this sounds really great um, as an interchange language. It would seem also potentially to be very useful as an authoring language. Um, do you have any thoughts on
2: that? Uh, I I didn't hear which the the, the adjective used as a what language authoring.
6: You could also just author oh, all, yes. all your ontologies and whatnot in IKL. Just have an IKL ontology editor or whatever. i uh, absolutely. That's what I propose to do for the rest of my
2: LeBorn days. Yes.
6: Oh, fantastic! Another one is. Are there any caveats and gotchas or disadvantages that you can think of of IKL? I mean, it seems almost too good to be true. Uh,
2: Yes, there are some caveats. Uh, I'll I'll come to them. Um, But uh, since you ask, I'll give you them now. One is uh, the question that someone asked on the the wiki, which is, are there any inference engines for it? No, there aren't yet. Uh, um, That would be the next thing to build, try and build uh, a useful inference engine for it. It would be non-trivial, I think. Because um, and this is the semantic gotcha, uh there are a number of new kinds of inconsistency one can construct in IKL that couldn't be constructed in a conventional first order logic, which is not in itself a you know a bad thing, but it does suggest that the task of writing a complete inference engine is going to be trickier than one might think and is gonna require genuine research. Um, so it is gonna to be a, a while. T-
4: I have a question to this
5: I understood that um, IKL is just an extension of common logic with a few new concepts and axioms and so we we
2: changed Um, the
4: first framework so why do you say it's difficult well no I said it was
2: an extension of logic in the sense that it retains the same logical rules uh, in the quantifiers the connectives or uh, the notion of sentence that change but it does have two new kinds of naming convention and they do come with non- non-trivial, in one case, in the case of the proposition names, highly non-trivial semantic conditioning added. So it is ex- a genuine extension to the language. And, and it's those extensions that require some um, thoughts to be given, let's put it that way, to design a complete inference engine. Now notice, I say complete. I mean, you could, you could um, use a conventional first-order inference engine on or, or ICLE, it's just that there would be some entailments it would miss. It could still be a very useful thing to have, and in fact, the ECRS the, the project has done that already. They, the, the Stanford group are using um, uh, uh, the Snark inference engine, which is a cl- uh, sort of grand old, um, you know, kind of Rolls Royce of first-order inference engines. that has been in widespread use for a long time now, developed at SRI. Um, using that on on um, and and they they do it basically by ignoring the they have external translators to get rid of all the ists and the proposition names wherever possible by decontextualizing. Uh, that handles that, which is the tricky part. Um, and then they, uh, if they have any uh, sort of faux higher order uh, construction to deal with, they change RAB into holds RAB to make the relation in turn into an argument again, which is again a classic um, uh, AI hackers workaround for getting... A how, superficially higher order statements to the first order and then you just drop it into the first order inference engine so I mean you can get a long way with current technology but 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 if if I was to give an honest answer to the question is there a complete ICLE in you know equal oriented inference engine no there isn't yet and the emphasis on the complete um, but I'd like there to be one I'm willing to spend a few years of my life trying to make one if, uh, if I can find the funding uh, nudge, nudge um, okay uh, let 's see idea of the gotchas that 's the only gotcha I can, serious gotcha I can think of, speaking of funding, why was the funding for ICRIS not continued? Do you know? Oh, um, it was very much intended to be a short term job I, I think basically ARDA is in a hurry, which is not surprising when you think, but their job is homeland security. Um, And they told us at the beginning, look, we're not in this for the long term. We want you guys, this is a national emergency. uh, We want you guys to stop having silly academic quarrels, buckle down and get something working within 18 months uh, that allows our various engines to interoperate. And uh, to a first approximation, we did that. And um, I say we, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I played a relatively small part in the background really doing the theoretical stuff. The people at Stanford and SciCore and other places did all that, all the serious engineering. Um, but but the project as a whole, I think, has, has been a success. But I think that now artist's view of it is, great, thanks very much. We <laughs> to move on to something
0: else. <laughs> um, uh, question, are uh, any of you guys uh, maybe uh, making a proposition to NSF then? Which... Logically, would be the right place to fund this. Um,
2: I, I, I'm interested to hear you say that that would be the logical place. I, I've been I've looked through the NSF website. I haven't found any programs that this would naturally seem to fit into. But maybe you could take this offline.
0: Yes, actually, NSF has a whole bunch of people uh, joining us at the Up Ontology Summit, and those are actually the right people to contact. We oh well, I
2: will, I'll get back to you on that because I, I actually—I mean—I I, I would much rather spend my time working on this than some of the things I am obliged to spend my time working on. Um, but anyway,
0: um, not appropriate. You but, finish up the slides. Uh, yeah.
2: So, just slide thirty-one. If you could, uh, uh, there's a little bit of boasting here. Um, so. Uh, I reckon that I, IKL can express just about any content that can be written in just about any formalism uh, obviously there's a little bit of hubris there but i I've been surprised honestly uh it turns out to be much more expressive than we thought it was going to be or than I thought it was going to be um, I thought it was just going to be a kind of kip on steroids, but I had no idea that we'd finish up being able to to describe things like unique name assumptions and various other apparently non-monotonic. And then to answer the altering point uh, made earlier, writing these axioms is surprisingly easy, as you get used to not worrying about whether you're quantifying over relations and are you allowed to, and realize that you can quantify over anything you damn well like. uh, A surprising number of otherwise at least sort of perhaps not tricky but anxiety provoking uh, ways of writing ontologies uh, suddenly become very very easy so um, the last line on that slide of course is a a bit of a joke to do with um, universal solvents and um, the early beginnings of chemistry but if you don't get the joke never mind I won't explain jokes now Now, um, technical issue so here's a sting in the tail Uh, a sting in the tail slide 32 now, those of you who know a little about logic will know that what we got here is something that a quantify over the propositions expressed by its own sentences and it has an unrestricted truth predicate. So it seems that Tarski proved that was impossible in 1950-something uh, because of no, because of the liar paradox. Uh, that seems not... Now, there is a complexity in the IKL semantics that we're still... I, I think it's fair to say, and Chris can speak to this because he's really the expert here um, if he wants to, uh, that we're still not absolutely happy about. But it seems to be the case that every paradox of construction that we can think of that can be rendered into IKL, a lot of them can, they're on this slide here, um, turn out to be simply contradictions. And there's a sort of common reason why, if you look at them. So the first one is the liar paradox. It says P equals... Now, P here is a proposition. The proposition that not P is true. Remember, putting brackets around the proposition name is like the truth predicate on the proposition. Or you could read that if you like as P equals that not is, is true that P. So that's the definition. It's got the form of a definition. That's the way you define a proposition. You'd say equals P that... And then you write a sentence. But since... IKL or common logic for that matter doesn't have an actual definition syntax this is simply an assertion it's simply a sentence and it turns out to be unsatisfiable and it's unsatisfiable essentially because uh, by using that name P it implicitly asserts that P exists so in fact if you wrote that with that if you wrote an existential quantifier in front of it so it said exists P equals P that not P not brackets P then it would be sort of clear why it was unsatisfiable because it, it asserts the existence of something that can't possibly exist which is a proposition which is true because I see when it's false so by being simply a state basically a, a statement of existence which has a superficial form well, sorry start again by being a simple statement of existence it turns out to be just unsatisfiable what makes it often seem to be a paradox is because it has a, I think it's because it has a form of a definition if you believe that anything of the form of definition is a definition then indeed you would be in a paradoxical situation because this would define something that couldn't exist and indeed that's the way it was traditionally thought of as being a definition and by the way if you were to say instead of interpreting it as being about propositions if you interpret it as it's usually interpreted as being about sentences you would also be in a paradoxical situation because there's no way faced with the liar sentence paradox of resolving it by saying oh well that sentence doesn't exist because there it is on the page in front of you (laughs) so it obviously exists as a sentence but of course in IKL the sentence might a a sentence when you wrap it with that and make it a proposition name might not refer to what it seems to refer to and in particular it might not refer to anything that could possibly have the right truth conditions in this case it doesn't Similarly, with Russell's paradox, which is the second example, the R there, there's no such R. There couldn't be. Um, and therefore, that's simply a contradiction, a logically unsatisfiable sentence. The third example is one that Chris Menzel uh, found a few weeks ago. I didn't even know about these paradoxes, but apparently Cook invented them a while ago. And I'll let you guys, anybody who loves paradoxes, just sit and study that one. Um, it defines a Property on propositions, which is true of precisely because the proposition that that property is only true of things that are false. Excuse me, that uh, Russell's paradox.
5: Is there a typo there? Not R. Of oh, R- is there. I hope not. And What's the typo? Uh, should it be not R of x instead of not x of x? No. Oh, okay. No,
2: the Russell property of a of a set of a class is it's the class of all classes that are not members of themselves.
5: Oh, sorry. Okay.
2: Yeah, right? So um, if you instantiate it, of course, that would be an R because the thing is that this has an instance in which, which is if and only if R of X, not R of R. Oh, sorry. If and only if R of R, not R of R. Okay. Yeah. Pam? Um, um, Mike?
6: Oh, yeah. Sorry. S- someone else want to go first? That's fine. No, okay. This is Mike Ashfield again. Um, you made a comment earlier about why it's about the advantages of doing this in an ontology as opposed to a logic I think you talk about the context Yeah, and I kind of followed that but then I, I, I was troubled by the fact that an ontology is a logic so this sounds a bit like mumbo jumbo
1: so what's
3: the difference
6: uh, between an ontology and a logic in what, in what which makes it true that it's better to do an in ontology instead of in a logic
2: <laughs> okay now I'm puzzled by your question because the difference between a logic and ontology seems so stark to me I'm not Quite sure what you mean by well, saying. Well, what I mean like is,
6: okay, a log- sure, uh, okay, an ontology is a set of expressions in a logic. Right. Uh huh. That's what I mean. <laughs> it's a, well, that's true, but right.
2: it, so it's, it's a logical theory, right? Right. Exactly. Uh,
6: ontolo- that's uh, what I mean. So, logic is always a ont- uh, Is an ontology is always a logical theory. Right. Okay, but but you're saying. Doing context in the ontology is better than doing analogic, but an ontology always is a
2: logical theory, so that doesn't show so you know, that, that doesn't add up. Okay, I, I okay. I'm not I, I'm not meaning to say that you shouldn't use the logic. What I'm saying is let me I, I can illustrate the point I'm trying to get across actually, I think, by looking at the process. Consider the task of writing an owl ontology. Right? Okay. Um, you know, you could you could go away. You could read the OWL specs, and you can go away. You could write an OWL ontology, and you can you know using um, Protege or something, or or our graphical ontology composing tool, if you like, and and then and then you can publish it on a website, and there it is. It's an OWL ontology, and someone else can take it and modify it and tweak it. And this is a sort of an ongoing process that people can do. Okay. Now, I can right. can contrast that with the task of defining OWL itself. Right, that required a working group. Uh, it required, you know, um, uh, almost legal processes to get it adopted as a standard. Right. Um, it has a formal semantics which is virtually incomprehensible. So everybody, including the authors who wrote it, and I speak as one of them, and it's a huge task to define a logic. It just because precisely because it's supposed to be a something that gets used for a large number of applications. So it's the difference between defining one of these kind of frameworks and just using the damn framework. Okay, right? that's really- clear. That's clear. Thank right, okay. And by the way, let me just add, that, that this framework is very close to the, you know, a, a, a framework that's been in use now for 50 odd years. It's just, you know, got a few little extra bits. Sure, non-trivial, but still, it's not like you have to adopt a totally new one every couple of weeks. Um, okay, last, uh, slide 33, yeah, right, so um, my last slide, slide 33, which for some reason doesn't have a slide number. Oh, well, it's the one after slide 32, um, and uh, there's a sort of moral, I, that I really I sort of struck me when I was making these slides, which is that you can think of the process of going from a textbook version of First Order Logic, straight out of Mendelssohn, to IKL in many ways of simply being more and more relaxed or or supplying more and more waves of naming entities and allowing more and more things in the universe without otherwise really changing the logic. The logic itself doesn't change, although it seems the language changes, but the actual logic, the logic of quantifiers, the logic of relations, the logic of individuals, the logic of all the Boolean connectives, all of that machinery of fertile logic is preserved through all of this. But you get more and more ways of naming things. So common logic lets you name relations and functions, which are also classes and properties and description logic. Cliff adds... Numerals and quoted character sequences and IKL uses those and they turn out to be basically the two basic data types that you need uh, out of which you can construct all the others and you can also then quantify over the names because you've got character sequences and names are character sequences CL modules give you names for a local universe and for ontologies themselves which turn out to be very useful IKL adds this opaque name construction and most importantly names for propositions and then that seems to be and this is where I was surprised when we did this work you sort of stop and take stock and you think wow what can we do now and the answer is my lord we should be able to do almost everything now maybe that's all we need and yet this has always all the way through has been first order logic really textbook first order logic out of Mendelssohn with more and more kinds of names for more and more kinds of theme and I found this great quote from Confucius here which I think uh, sums up the whole thing as so you can sort of finally I'll end by saying that you could kind of sum up my, my talk by saying that we should all be superior men
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> on that note uh, let's <laughs> thank Dr. Hayes for giving us this very comprehensive look into the IKL work CL in my hats off to yourself, your team, uh, Chris, Pat, and all you guys who are doing this great work. uh, That pays the foundation for everything else that we might likely build upon. Uh, One of the reasons why I uh, had asked Pat to come urgently to talk, of course I'm really glad I did, uh, is that uh, this Onion Group uh, is starting their work to build an ontology uh, in ontology around the IT uh, terminologies. And I hope I was hoping that uh, a, a, a talk in CL and IKL will be inspirational uh, towards that effort. And thanks once again. Uh, we actually had gone into extended time, I'm glad the conference lines uh, didn't kick us out. But uh, let's all thank Pat and Chris and uh, of course everyone else who is able to join us and chipped in and made this such an interesting session. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. bye. Bye.